Welcome to Pick a Little, Talk a Little. If you're listening to this, it means you're listening to a podcast about musical theater. We talk about musicals on it. Uh, I, as always, am your host, Gabriella Gazelowitz, and we have a familiar face, voice, person with us today. You? It's your brother, Izzy. It's Izzy. Izzy's back. So, Pavlovian-like, I've conditioned all of our listeners to associate you with, like, really good musicals. Aw, thanks. Wait a minute, but you love all musicals. But, like, objectively good Even musicals. the bad ones. Is what show are we doing <laughs> okay. today? Today, we are doing one of my personal favorite musicals, uh, Guys and Dolls. I'm like, oh, man. Okay, is I'm really excited about this. Okay. Um, yeah. I, so, wait. Can I just quickly just, like, share one thing? So, we had our email chain about doing Guys and Dolls. And at first, I was like, oh, it's going to be exciting. And I, like, messaged you back and was like, wait, there's no plot. I messaged you back, and I was like, but listen, look at all these song lyrics. There is, to a plot. It's such a good musical that's so rich and vibrant and interesting that the plot just isn't important. Like, that's a choice it made. Yeah, fair. I mean, I just, like, in my head, I always think about the fact that, like, oh, this, which came out in 1950, and The Music Man, which came out in 1957, have, like, basically the same plot. Well, it has the same plot as a, as a teen romance movie, which we'll get to. Um, okay, fair. Okay. Also the same plot as Book of Mormon. So this musical originally played on Broadway in 1950. Music and lyrics by Frank Lesser. It's our first Frank Lesser musical. And the book is, it says it's credited as Joe Swirling and Abe Burroughs. But uh, really what happened was Joe Swirling uh, wrote it and then Abe Burroughs rewrote it, like Hollywood style. Um, okay, so it's actually written by Abe Burroughs then. Uh, yeah, but Joe Swirling's son feels a way about it. Can we agree that this is the best Frank Lesser musical? Yeah, sure. It's not that he didn't write other good musicals, but like he certainly... What, what, what are we going to say if his work is better than this? Baby, it's cold outside? Um, it's time to talk about our personal associations with this musical. Once again, we're about level here. Yeah, just endless taped recordings of both the original Broadway cast and the 92 revival, Yeah, I'd say right? I'm equally familiar with the two of them. And Izzy, mm-hmm. do you, I don't know if you remember that we did see it live when we were young. It was a free staged performance in a park. Huh, I do remember that. Yeah, it was an okay production. The cast wasn't so good, but the guy who played Nicely Nicely was really good. So I'm not going to do too much Forbidden Broadway, but I will tell you that instead of I've never been in love before, Forbidden Broadway has... um. I know I've seen this show before in some old high school gym on someone's basement floor. It's funny. Ah, um, great. Anyway, the only other thing I'll say before we get into it is that um, this musical was contemporary when it came out. You know, it's like going and seeing In the Heights in 2006 or whatever, but it feels like a period piece, but in a really good way. Like everything is heightened and comedic enough and like just sort of not realistic enough that it actually acts as a preserve only enough to act as a preservative haha ha. wait a minute i thought it was supposed to take place in like the 20s or 30s in like the golden age of gangsters and it was no so in the 50s so in the, late 40s. the the musical is based on the short stories of damon runyon um, I haven't right. read any of them who has interesting sure it's, it's such a clearly not supposed to be 
I mean, like you're saying, it's kind of timeless, but it's, it's very like 20s, 30s, 30s golden age of gangsters. But it's set in 1950. So the show starts with a uh, fugue for Tin Horns. And so this is an amazing thing. This show, a lot of people consider this show one of the greatest or even the greatest musical comedies of all time. And it's just because, you know, each song after the other is a hit out of the park. It feels very familiar and cozy. But what I think what people don't give it enough credit for is just how creative the show is. It makes really interesting choices, like even details like where would you put a song in the show is things and like what is this song going to be about is things that how did they even think of it? Lesser in particular. Um, so Fugue for Tin Horns starts as an instrumental that's like a pantomime, like mini drama comedy of various characters in New York interacting and it and it immerses us in the setting that we're in and it gives us the sense that the place that would be like Broadway, like right outside this theater is full of no good nicks and lousy types and pickpockets and stuff, but in like a fun way. Yeah. It does. But like, cause like everyone is sort of a, everyone's kind of a bad gangster. So you don't have to confront the fact like, wait, are they killing people? Everyone's kind of like a low level hustler or gambler. It's not like, you know, big organized crime. It's sort of like the kind of, yeah, I will also you say know. that we were, Izzy, you and I were raised to this musical with a personal family association. I think our mother thinks of her grandfather when she listens to this musical. And by I think, I mean, she says so explicitly. Who was like a... Well, yeah, he was, he was similarly, he was just like a, you know, someone who spent all his money at the racetrack and like knew people who were mobsters. Right, he like sold sacrament wine during Prohibition and like had one friend that was rubbed out by the mob. But he was a nice guy who wasn't hurting anyone. So shout out to Papa George. So Fugue for Tin Horns goes into our opening number. And this is another thing where I'm like, this is a really creative opening. Um, that it has three characters, all of whom are supporting characters. They're not faceless um, ensemble members and they're not stars. They're just in the middle. And they come out and they sing a song overlapping over each other about betting on the horses. Um, and okay. Is we this where you're, are you going right to say now. what I think you're going to say? Okay, there's two things to talk about. The first, I'll get out of the way, is yes, the Broadway revival production from 1992 prominently features J.K. Simmons, and as soon as you hear his voice, you're like, hey, that's J.K. Simmons. But listen, we're not here to talk about J.K. Simmons. This is the first song where you're like, oh, you know what Guys and Dolls has? Amazing lyrics. Yes. Every single rhyme is Brilliant. Like, listen, I know, spoiler alert for all those listening at home, you know and I know that this podcast will end with a favorite and least favorite lyric section. But, like, I just think as we go, we need to, like, I hope I don't steal your favorite lyric, but, like, listen. Okay, uh, let me just mm -hmm. give you one line from from this one. Okay, is it that he's no bum steer? (laughs) Paul Revere is no bum steer? tell you, Paul Revere, now this is no bum steer. It's from a handicapper that's real sincere. And so and so here's what I will say that we see from this song. This is a musical that's like predicated on slang. And one, I feel like eight-year-old me knew way more like low-life, uh, you know, 50-year-old slang than was necessary. Two, um, I still uh, don't like understand all slang. of it. Three, the urge that I'm going to be resisting this podcast episode is just pushing my glasses up the bridge of my nose and being like, well, actually, I know what this means and just translating every single thing that I know what it means. But I think a weaker show would have brought an audience stand in to be like, I'm the new gambler in town and have everyone, you know, have someone do like a song about like, here's what all the slang means. And the show is just kind of like, 
you're in it, you're going to deal with it. So I will say, again, I have not actually read any Damon Runyon, but the one thing I do know about Damon Runyon is that he's famous for his slang. Like, he, that was kind of what his stories were. He immersed you in this, like, weird, like, maybe some of it made up world of, like, low-life slang. I mean, that's what, so um, I think this, that's what they did yeah. for West Side Story. But anyway. So we move right along and we see the Salvation Army, God bless them, in Midtown, uh, led by one Sergeant Sarah Brown. Sergeant because the Salvation Army, like, ranks their officers like they're in an army. Um, and they sing Follow the Fold, and which is a good song. It's one of the only songs in the musical that I don't like. My heart doesn't start racing when it starts playing. But it, it gets the point across, which is that she is frigid. Yeah, I actually... Can I be honest with you? I literally learned about the Salvation Army from Guys and Dolls. Yeah, whatever. Um, we get some exposition after Follow the Fold from some yes. of the best-named gangsters of all time. Like what? What's your favorite gangster name? Okay. Um, nicely Nicely Johnson. Um, I also um, like Benny Nathan Detroit. Yeah. Harry the Horse. Harry the Horse. Big Jewel, all of them. All of them. Um, and the thing about this show is, like, I feel like a lot of Broadway book writers should, like, study this show because the book is so good. Because the exposition isn't awkward at all. Everything is carried through with a joke. Everything feels natural. So what we learn is that there's a group of guys that are doing a secret uh, illegal underground crap game. And that Lieutenant Brannigan, he's not a lieutenant in the Salvation Army. He's a, a cop. Um is breathing down their necks, and he has to catch them in the act to take them in. And we also learn that a marker is the most important thing. A marker is like an IOU, but in a world of illegal gambling where there's a lot of sketchiness going on, there needs, you know, it's a sort of honor amongst thieves that when you put down your marker, like, you can't break that trust. So when you put down your marker, it's as good as whatever it is you're promising, or you are just destroyed as an individual. However, the show starts with Nathan Detroit trying to put a marker down for the $1,000 security deposit that Joey Biltmore requires to hold their craft game in the Biltmore garage, but Nathan Detroit is such a lowlife that uh, that marker is not accepted. The Biltmore garage wants a grand, but we ain't got a grand on hand. All right, the song is oldest established. Oh God, it's so good. One, it's amazing. Two, okay, so Sondheim says God is in the details, and that is something that I think this show really embodies, and once again, we don't have the time to go through every single song and point out all of the little things they've done, but I just want to point out a few things in Oldest Established. One, there's the central hook of the song, which is the joke, which is that uh, Nathan organizes the quote-unquote oldest established permanent floating crap game in New York. There's the fact that it's like the slang, like there are well-heeled shooters everywhere. Uh, there's jokes about where they can have the game that also world build. They now have a lock on the door at the gym at PS84. So you know that they've just had this game everywhere. And also my favorite one has always been that there's the ensemble comes out and they're singing about how it's this crap game. And because it's illegal for one time in the song, they whisper, they go, they like belt. It's the oldest established permanent floating crap game in New York. And those are my feelings about yeah. that song. And I could do that with every song, but I'm not right. going to. We also learn that Sky Masterson okay. is in town. Sky Masterson? Yeah. I hear he'll bet on anything. Yeah, he's called Sky because he bets Sky high. We also meet Adelaide, who comes to say hi to Nathan because it's their 14-year uh, anniversary of their engagement. 
Can you talk a little bit about Adelaide and Vivian Blaine, please? Um, I mean, the part was written for her. She's great. She was, I think, the only one of the original four Broadway actors to go on and be in the movie. The movie is good, but I'm just, you know, Marlon Brando was completely miscast. And anyway. Wait, can I say one thing about the movie? That Frank Sinatra should have been Sky. Yeah, okay, fine. We're good. Um, so Adelaide is originally from Rhode Island and she's a showgirl who's now, I wouldn't say aging, but like no longer a spring chicken. Her biological clock is ticking and she wants babies now. Um, so she thinks that, um, Nathan has given up the crap game and he's keeping it from her and she has a cold. This is important. Oh God, is it important? Um, and then once again, like not to go into every little detail about this musical, but there's a debate about whether or not Mindy sells more cheesecake or strudel. New York. Right. Um, oh, yeah. Speaking of accents, we will not impersonate on this podcast. Wait a minute. Podcast, Did this whole show take episode. place in New York? So so Sky shows up, and uh, we learn a lot about Sky in a funny way that ties the last few minutes together. Uh, Nathan has found out whether or not Mindy sells more cheesecake or strudel and then tries to make Sky bet on it. And Sky makes this big speech about how you should never take a sure bet because it means that someone knows that they have you. Um, but then Sky's weakness is because he's dashingly handsome as Nathan says, all right, well, I bet you a thousand dollars because a grand is what he needs to, uh, get the Biltmore garage for the game. I bet you that you can't take a woman that I choose, of course he calls her a doll, on a date tonight because he knows that Sky is going to Havana, as in Cuba. Okay. Can we talk about this for one second? Yeah. Is this a thing that happened that you like could take someone out for the night to Havana, Cuba? I mean, he picks her up at like noon. I guess so. And so he bets, and and Sky immediately forgetting the monologue he just made is like sure. And then uh, Nathan's like, "It's Sarah, that chick who's standing on the street corner yelling at people to like stop drinking and gambling." And Sky's like, "Oh, well, I didn't listen to my own advice." By the way, can I? One reason why the show does not feel like it takes place in 1950 is that Sarah Brown is definitely like really into prohibition. For sure, it's because of the weird stuff going on with the setting. Um, so Sky tries to interest Sarah. He goes into the mission. He tries to pretend like he's interested. She doesn't really fall for it. He gives her his marker mm, mm, that he will uh, get mm. that he will be able to bring twelve people for her upcoming meeting. And they're arguing about like what a low life he is, and they sing, "I'll know when my love." Comes along. Comes along? Comes along. But the fact that he references what her dream man would be as a quote-unquote Scarsdale Galahad is... Oh my god, that's so good. The homey aroma of his pipe. Yeah, okay, it's dated. Um, the breakfast-eating breakfast Brooks Brothers eating. type. All know is uh, each of them talking about what it will be like when they find the person that they're going to love. She says that she knows exactly who this person will be in her head. And Sky just says that he'll it'll be love at first sight. He says, I leave to chance in chemistry. Chemistry? Yeah, chemistry. That's going to be a good throwback. And it's one of the reasons it's a great song is because as an audience member in a convention-laden Broadway musical in the best ways possible, it's very obvious that they're meant to be together. Like, the song knows what it's doing. Right. I mean, I think, like, I think that the fact that what they want is not what they're going to get 
is already like supposed to be kind of a joke because you know they're going to get together. Right, and that's another thing. So this musical is like, say, Oklahoma and a lot of the other musicals where there's an A romantic plot and a B romantic plot and the B romantic plot is more interesting. And while that's true here, the A plot also stands on its own, which is another thing that's remarkable about the show. Yeah, I always, because okay, like for me, there's certain of these classic musicals where the B plot is just so much more interesting than the A plot. But in this case, I love both. Yeah, and they're tied together really well. And the song ends and the chemistry, chemistry? Yeah, chemistry is so strong that he kisses her and she hits him. Uh, so I would like right. to remind you that you were on this podcast for My Fair Lady. And while My Fair Lady is way more like sexist and problematic than Guys and Dolls, uh, Guys and Dolls isn't perfect, but it's easier to overlook. I will note that. You were saying earlier that like, it's very well constructed. Like, like the classic musical with the A plot and the B plot, like, kind of barely tries to connect them things are really well like the story is really well structured the two plots like wind together really smartly the more i think about the show the more the sort of fact that it's cliched feels like oh it was kind of setting some of those cliches right Mm. that like some of the things that feel cliche are because guys and dolls is so iconic that certain aspects of the american musical since then just like what we're really thinking about is Guys and Dolls, which really sets a precedent. Yeah, man. So uh, we go to Adelaide at the Hot Box, which is where she performs. She's the uh, head of, she's not in the chorus. She's like the lead person. Um, so she's like a Whoopi Goldberg in Sister Act. Headliner was the word I was looking for. <laughs> so she's a Whoopi Goldberg. She's a Whoopi Goldberg. At the and hot box. so so what's an interesting thing about Adelaide is she gets two show within a show numbers. And both of them, like the character that she's portraying, for lack of a better way of putting it, are the opposite of how she's actually feeling. So this song is a happy song that we're about to talk about, and she's currently upset with Nathan. Uh, the song is Bushel and a Peck. Yeah. Bushel and a Peck, so the thing about this song is it's a pastiche, so it's great. Like the lyrics are, and it's clever, and it's not trying to be as clever. It's trying to be kind of silly. Like the cows and chickens are going to the dickens. Part of Lesser's brilliance is he how, knows how to write for whatever the specific purpose is. So yeah, it's a, it's a cute little farm number. It's great. After the show, Adelaide and Nathan are arguing. Uh, it turns out that she's been writing her mom letters for the last 14 years that she and Nathan are married with five children. Um, so that's awkward. And she also finds out that he's running the game again. And she's very sick, so she's uh, reading a book about why she's sick. We're up to Adelaide's lament. Oh God! Okay, I have to. I have to ask you before we get into this. Did you pick your favorite lyric from Adelaide's lament? There's one, but it's actually from the reprise. I reread the lyrics to this song, and first of all, when I was a kid, I don't think I understood all the references and jokes. It is tremendous. It's like it should be considered like, it, on the same a- level as like soliloquy from Carousel. Honestly, it's just like, like this is just an amazing song. I will okay, also I shout out a couple lyrics from it. So the premise of the song is she is reading this medical book that is informing her that the reason that she has not been feeling well is uh, caused by stress by the fact that her boyfriend has been stringing her along. And it's this weird juxtaposition of like medical lingo and jokes about being a woman in a long term relationship where he won't commit. Now you may proceed to cite some lyrics. I will read an entire verse of the song. You can spray her wherever you figure there's strep to cockeye lurk. You can give her a shot for whatever she's got, but it just won't work. If she's tired of getting the fish eye from the hotel clerk, a person can develop a cold. Yeah. 
Um, oh, God. So I will just like that not every production does this. But there's a footnote in the book that says C note. And in some versions, she goes C note. Like she doesn't know what it means. And then like a note chimes. And she's like, oh, C note. Um, I actually don't like that joke. Um, but like the fact that this song has the lyrics, um, psychosomatic symptoms difficult to endure affecting the upper respiratory tract is Oh sung. my God, I love it. It's remarkable. <laughs> I'm sorry. Frank Lesser's lyrics. The fact that he managed to get both these like funny jokes about their relationship and this medical terminology all into these like rhyming couplets, it's unreal. Right. They get on the train to Niagara and she can heal church bells chime. Then they get off at Saratoga for the 14th time. Like the layers of what's going on in there. And it took a lot of explanation from our parents when we were like six. But uh, the yeah. next song is the title song. So we're on a roll. Speaking of amazing rhymes and puns, <laughs> let's talk about Guys and Dolls. Let's talk about Guys and Dolls, which is Nathan's friends singing about how love ruins guys and makes them do stupid things and uses many, many slanging synonyms for man and woman. Yeah, J.K. Simmons and, the, and that other guy. Actually, Nicely Nicely Johnson was uh, played by Walter Bobby, who has gone on to be uh, an extremely successful theater director. He directed the uh, revival of Chicago that's still playing on Broadway. So when I was like, I'm not going to explain every lyric of every song, it took so long for our family to figure out what this one lyric meant that I need to talk about it. When you meet a mug lately out of the jug and he's still lifting platinum falderall, call it hell, call it heaven, it's probable 12 to 7 that the guy's only doing it for some doll. In translation, when you meet a mug, a lowlife, a gangster, lately out of the jug, meaning he's just gotten out of prison, and he's still lifting, which means stealing, Platinum falderall, falderall meaning junk, so platinum falderall is a joke, so meaning he's stealing jewelry and fine things, even though he's just gotten out of prison and he's probably on parole, then he's probably doing it for some doll. Oh boy. Do you think sometimes they could take the slang too far? And I was like, no, that's what I love about this show. Yeah, I don't care. Also, I like how they say uh, what otherwise would have been his union dues. I like when you meet a gent paying all kinds of rent for a flat that could flatten the Taj Mahal. Like, just every, oh, it's all good. And, like, you don't even think for a second, like, wait, isn't flat British slang? It doesn't matter. The rhyme is so clever. And and there's multiple, and once again, there's also multiple jokes about gambling where they say it's probable 12 to 7 as, like, they've, like they're, they're jokingly actually placing literal odds on whether or not the premise of the song is true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Also, God, this show is also full of references to things that would have been familiar to audiences in 1950, like Vitalis and Barbasol, and later on Guy Lombardo. Okay, also another example of this having to take place in, like, 1950, mention of a television set. That's this is true. This the 20s. Guys sitting at home in front of the television set who used to be something of a rover. That's what's happening all over. Good lyrics. Lyrics are good. Next thing. So this is where the musical becomes the same plot as Book of Mormon, which is that our hero, in this case Sarah's mission, is failing because she has her work cut out for her. Because instead of being Mormons in Uganda, she's Salvation Army people in, like, Hell's Kitchen. Um, and the general of the Salvation Army is coming to visit, and Sarah's now in a tight spot. So Sky reminds her that he can get the dozen people to the meeting if she goes with him on a date so she agrees so you know not as bad as my fair lady but still kind of suspect 
Meanwhile, with Nathan, Brannigan the cop finds the game and he's like, what's going on here? So they have to pretend that it's Nathan's bachelor party and then Adelaide walks in. So now he's in a bind because he has to elope with Adelaide. Plus, Nathan. Right. Oh, God, I love it. It's perfect. Um, Nathan also realizes that Sky succeeded. So now he's also out of grand, which is a grand less than he had to start with. So that's a problem. Cut to Havana, Cuba, in which Sarah is getting uh, really drunk because Sky is ordering her uh, dulce de leches and uh, God. So it's it's the least fortunate part of the show. It's it's what it's it's, it's a Cuban milkshake, which is dulce de leche and rum, right? Yeah, he just orders dulce de leche, and she goes, "What's in it besides milk?" He goes, "Sugar and a sort of native flavoring." She goes, "What's the name of the flavoring?" And he says, "Bacardi," and she says, "Does Bacardi have alcohol in it?" And he says, "Only enough to act as a preservative." Yikes! So this is the same person who wrote uh, "Baby, It's Cold Outside." Yes, this is this is what I was talking about. What what, what happens next? Well, she's so drunk that she sings my personal favorite song on the show, the song that speaks to me the most, which is If I Were a Bell. Not to be confused with There Were Bells on the Hill from The Music Man. That was our first episode. So the song is just adorable, and it's just her using all of these weird anthropomorphized analogies to describe how excited she is that they've kissed and that they're together and that she is having a good time. I also like that in the lyrics of the song, there's a throwback to I'll Know, when she says, ask me how I feel from this chemistry lesson I'm learning. He's like, chemistry? And she's like, yeah, chemistry. So it's amazing that in these two entirely different songs, they manage to connect them and have the throwback without doing reprise. And this isn't the part where I will point out that there are almost no reprises in this show. And I was like, oh, that speaks to like the quality of the show and apparently lesser like oh, maybe we should put in more reprises of the show in Act 2. To which uh, his book writer reportedly replied, if you reprise the songs, we'll reprise the jokes. I will say that I do not understand why Skye and Sarah like each other. You just kind of have to take it on face value. Even though she says she doesn't want some fly-by-night Broadway romance explicitly, like, she's just so charming when she's drunk or whatever, I guess, that Skye feels bad and teen movie style tells Sarah the truth, that he took her out on a bet. Uh, she actually takes it pretty well and, like, drunkenly doesn't want to leave Havana and he, like, forces her back to New York while she sobers up. Yeah, it's kind of like the scene in um, 10 Things I Hate About You. Yeah, Julia Stiles gets yeah. drunk and oh, tries wait, to make out with Heath what? Ledger and he feels bad. Can we talk what? about 10 Things I Hate About You and Guys and Dolls? Because I know that 10 Things I Hate About You is based on Taming of the Shrew, but is it also subtly based on Guys and Dolls? Well, because they both have the sort of uh, theme of, like, transforming the girl who's not necessarily undesirable but, like, doesn't like doesn't have a proper relationship with men i mean it's a common motif because uh men think that women should change for them and the and art reflects that but um they get back to new york at like 4 a.m and he sings my time of day to her which is beautiful and he also stops in the song to tell her that his first name is really obadiah which is cute they have like a bible thing going on because he reads a lot of hotel bibles wait stop for a second that's a good callback because when he meets her, he impresses her with his biblical knowledge and it's because of all the... Right. Which I guess is something they have in common that she's not going to have in common with any other gangster is that they can like out Bible verse each other, which is cute. <laughs> but like the way, the way he describes the city where he goes like um, a couple of deals before dawn when the street belongs to the cop and the janitor with the mop and the grocery clerks are all gone. This song, if you actually just read the lyrics, it actually legitimately sounds like a poem. 
It's great. Um, but oh no, there's only been one act of the show. So I think we need a big romantic number and then a sudden dramatic shift. You read my mind. Yeah, I guess it's the song that goes like this. They sing I've Never Been In Love Before, which is one of those, the number was just like everyone like scrambled over themselves to make it a standard. And it's a great song. It's just like, it's a great song. That's all I really have to say about it. Okay, but it like doesn't have the strongest lyrics in the show. So in like a lot of shows that we've done on this show, like say Oklahoma in particular was an issue where because the A uh, plot couple was supposed to be serious, their language was very flowery in a way that they didn't speak. And Guys and Dolls mostly resists that, like I'll Know and My Time of Day. The one time it really falls into that pit is with this song. Yeah. Definitely. Even um, If I Were a Bell is sort of a little bit like the sort of metaphors she's using are kind of silly and it's a little bit more, it feels a little more her than this song does. Right. For sure. Back when you were writing a musical and you knew that if the show was a hit, songs would have crossover appeal, which is not something that writers today of musical theater generally think about. So I think it's something that sometimes they thought about a little too hard. Um, But here's the thing. They were out all night. And Sarah had, before they, she left, was trying to invigorate her team back at the mission. So she was out, and they were out marching all night trying to find sinners. So if she's not in the mission and they're not in the mission, then who's driving the van? No one. And it uh, turns, it turns out, out it's freaking Nathan Detroit. Nathan Detroit holds the crap game in the mission. And even though Sarah was willing to uh, overlook the bet premise of their date... She just can't deal with it anymore, and she uh, dumps Sky and is very upset. It's the classic mix-up, because she thinks, oh no, it wasn't a bet, you took me out on a date so that your friend could host his crap game in the mission, which is not true. Which is not true, and curtain falls, yeah. So, will Sky and Sarah get back together? Will the cops break up the crap game? Will Nathan Detroit and Adelaide Will anybody get married? Get... Will we learn what lifting platinum fall all means? So, act two? The, the beginning of act two is uh, Adelaide's other number. And remember, whatever her uh, show within a show numbers are the opposite of how she's feeling. So she's absolutely elated because she thinks she and Nathan are finally going to elope. And she sings Take Back Your Mink. Uh, I don't know which I like more, Take Back Your Mink or... Uh, Bushel and a Peck. Bushel and a Peck's more famous. I like Bushel and a Peck more. So she's like, she's not a stripper, but she's a showgirl who like shows some skin. So the song Take Back Your Mink, the premise is, you know, the two things that it's absurd that she would be are a farmer and a debutante. And like, those are the both characters we see her be. And in Take Back Your Mink, she's just like supposed to be this like young rich girl who was getting all of these presents from this gentleman suitor. And it turns out he was only after one thing. So she says, well, you know, I'm better than that. You can just take it all back. But as she sings, she like throws the stuff at him and she and the chorus girls are undressing over the course of the song. It's funny. You know why I was thinking about 10 Things I Hate About You in relation to Guys and Dolls other than like the guy takes a bet to take out a girl plot? Why? What I else? think both of them are kind of Shakespearean. There's this sort of like, like a, both kind of Shakespearean, inspired by Shakespearean comedies. Because everyone ends up married at the end? Spoiler? Right, there's also this like series of like misunderstand, of, like comedic misunderstandings and like right when one person finds out about one thing, it makes someone else think something else is happening. But so, yeah, so Adelaide, even though she's briefly walking on air, she learns the truth. She learns that she and, and Nathan are not going to elope and she sings a reprise of Adelaide's Lament. Oh. Meanwhile, you forgot Sarah, about the worst part of the show. It's not the 
worst part of the show. So Sarah has an adorable Irish grandfather, which sidebar, Nathan Detroit is coded Jewish and Sarah is obviously Irish American. So there's like a very New York thing to that, that it, even though, you know, the yeah. original Broadway cast was all white people, it's not whitewashed. So Sarah has an adorable Irish grandfather who's also in the Salvation Army and has been there this whole time. And he sings her now a fake little Irish song about how he wants her to find love. And it's called More I Cannot Wish You. And like, okay, another good thing about this show is that all songs are like two minutes long. Like they feel longer in a good way, but they're like really short, which is like shows today have a tendency to go on, have each song go on for too long. This song feels longer than two minutes. <laughs> Okay. The song is think, the song okay. is, is certainly cute, but there's also say, there's also hard to comprehend lyrics like your own true love this day with the sheep's eye and the licorice tooth. Meanwhile, uh Sky needs to find the crap game because he needs to get people to go to the mission because he gave his marker. And that's how it is. Also, he wants to win back Sarah. Um, and where is the crap game being held that they like did a really cool non-Tony winning set on stage in 1950? In the sewers. In the New York sewers. It's awesome. Um, um, I was looking up the lyrics to some of these songs, and one of the versions uh, I found on some like random crappy like li- website, like azlyrics.com, had written every time it said crap game as CR star P. <laughs> so Nathan is getting his uh, butt handed to him at the crap game, partly because Big Jewel is a big old bully and he has uh, dice with no sides, but it's okay because he remembers where the pips were. So he just tells Nathan what he's rolling and Nathan just has to take it. It's kind of great. Oh, Um, gosh. So Sky shows up and he bets. So he says, I will give a grand to every person in this room if if I lose. And if I win, you all have to come to the prayer meeting. And, you know, he's Sky High Masterson. That's how he does it. Oh, also, he gives Nathan the grand and claims that he uh, failed to take Sarah on the date, which I suppose is him being like, well, one, nice to Nathan, and two, like, it sort of takes a weird monetary edge out of his relationship with Sarah. He no longer gained Uh financially from taking her on a date. And so it's time. Uh, so Izzy, Izzy, it's a musical. You sing when emotions yes. are high, tensions are high, something important is happening. Everything happens in like, it's like slow motion as Sky prepares to roll the most important dice roll of his life. Um, and he sings Luck Be a Lady. It's kind of amazing. Okay, the very concept of the song, the joke that they call you Lady Luck, but there is room for doubt. Sometimes you have a very unladylike way of running out. So the idea of Lady Luck, which is something the audience is familiar with, as um, taking the personification to like the next level and talking about his anxiety, uh, like the anxiety of being with a faithful lover. Like it's just really smart. But yeah, like this being this dramatic moment and like totally deflating the tension with this like fun song. And so then Sky throws the, the, the dice. And what happens? Well, we don't know because it blacks out. Also, we don't know because it's a musical, it's a stage musical, and we can't see the dice from the audience. Yeah, that's true. Um, But listen, I think this is another brilliant choice in that, like, if you had to see him, what he rolls, and everybody react to it, it would actually not be as sort of exciting or, like, as funny as then, like, 
the surprise of, in the next scene, seeing all the gamblers heading to the mission. Yeah, so it blacks out in the next scene, everyone is fetching that they have to go to the mission. It's like perfect comedic timing to just, you know, have it like freeze on that moment of like, you don't know what happened, and then seeing the next scene, which is all the gamblers going to the mission. Yeah, Sky ends up at one point lecturing everyone and telling them like how they're supposed to behave. It's great. Um, yeah. So Adelaide and Nathan um, get into a little bit of a fight, and she says, why don't we elope right oh, wait. now? And he says... I have to go to a prayer meeting. (laughs) I love it. That is the biggest lie you've ever told me. But I'm telling you it's true. Also, having having this song kind of have those little, like, Yiddishisms makes it even funnier, the notion of, like, Nathan Detroit, the very obviously Jewish gangster, the idea that he would be going to a Salvation Army prayer meeting, right? Other than just being, like, a lowlife is, like, particularly, like, yeah, that's not true. So the song is called Sumi, and it's the two of them arguing. Like, once again, it's like the show is very smartly written. The way he's singing is like um, slower in tempo, and she's like interrupting him and going like much quicker. And oh, yeah. And like the way she repeats herself, like, you promise me this, you promise me that, you promise me anything under the sun. Like, or, or you gamble it here, you gamble it there, you gamble it everything, all except me. So, like, there's a lot of like alliteration that even gives like life to their argument oh and also she's still sneezing also, for, okay um so here we are at the mission um and everyone shows up and uh everyone the general you know is there and she's very impressed she actually finds out that they were that they lost a bet and that's why they're there and she actually thinks that's brilliant um and then for uh Kind of no reason at all, other than that they need someone to give testimony. They have Nicely Nicely Johnson uh, stand up and, like, make a speech, except the speech is a song. Um, Depending on your production, uh, could vary on how sincere he is. Uh, The song is Sit Down, You're Rocking the Boat. I don't think think there's a a sincere bone in his body. In the movie, he joins the Salvation Army at the end. Yeah, but the movie's the movie. Listen, it's like... This is like Tevye's dream and Fiddler on the Roof. This song is like that, in that this is very clearly fake, and that's the point. Sure. Um, but he commits to it, and the song is a parable wherein he has a dream that he's on a boat to heaven, but he is so weighted down by his vices that he drowns, essentially. But it's such a showstopper. Yeah. Oh, my God. Like, this is a song that's, that, like, it's like Luck Be a Lady was two songs ago. And now we're with Sit Down, You're Rocking the Boat. It's amazing. Yeah. It's also fun because this is not, like I said, this is not a major character. This is not, a, like, everyone knows that they've had to come on a bet, oh, and, right? And, so it's not like there's any kind of tension of, like, are they going to know? Like, what's going on? It's literally just, hey, let's have this random side character, Nicely Nicely Johnson, sing this amazing, like, show-stopping number. It is pretty great. And he was played by Titus Burgess from The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt the last time the show was on Broadway, even though apparently that production was a dud. You know, wait, you know who else was in that production? Uh, Oliver Platt for some reason. No, Lauren Graham from Gilmore Girls. Come on, I was gonna, I was considering saying Lauren Graham, who also is anyway, um, but also Oliver Platt. Um, so Sit Down, Your Rock in the Boat is amazing. Then uh, Adelaide and Sarah meet up and sing a song about how they're going to... Uh, marry and house train their respective love interests 
Um, Marry the Man Today is a fun song, if, once again, kind of problematic. I have a friend who both loves guys and dolls and is divorced, and she's like, I definitely got the wrong message from guys and dolls about how to have a healthy relationship. But you know what you did get a lesson from Guys and Dolls? You learned all about lots of different department stores. Yeah, like at Wanamaker's and Saks and Klein's. Even though this song is like stereotypy, it's just so fun. Is our sister was Adelaide yeah. um, in this number in her college musical theater singing group. Fun fact, if you don't recall. Um, okay, but can I just say, it's tongue-in-cheek. Yeah. Like, it's notion of what a respectable, conservative, clean gentleman is is someone who plays golf, wears galoshes, and drinks Ovaltine. Yeah, it's amazing, and it's full of references, some of which I get and some of which I don't. Not gonna lie, who's Roger's Pete, or what is a Roger's Pete? Carefully expose him to domestic life, and if he ever tries to stray from you, have a pot roast, have a headache, have a baby, have two, six, nine, stop. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I also love, again, how, like, Lesser writes... Sarah and Adelaide very differently. Yeah. Like the song, it really comes out how well he has a grasp of their voices. Sarah corrects Adelaide's grammar. Yeah. Doesn't that kind of apply to you and whatever. you and me? It is a little bit kind of disappointing that this show is between Sit Down, You're Rocking the Boat and and the finale. Already worth the point of denouement, and I don't know if we really need the song, but I don't care. Happily Ever After, I guess. Yeah, Happily Ever After, and they sing a reprise of Guys and Dolls. Though, Nathan does... Uh, at the end, sneeze. Oh, yeah. In a sort of subtle reference to, like, how potentially unsuited he is to domestic life. Uh, anyway. So, the Tonys of this musical. It was the fifth annual Tony Award, so they didn't actually do nominations that weren't winners yet. Um, but kind of assume it was nominated for everything. Um, it won Best Musical, Leading Actor went to Robert Alda, who played Sky and is also the father of Alan Alda, as in Hawkeye from MASH. Um, Isabel Bigley, who played Sarah, got featured actress in a musical, and I feel like she and him should have been on the same level, but whatever. Choreography went to the great Michael Kidd, direction went to the great George S. Kaufman. Uh, it did not win Score, because Score, uh, went to Call Me Madam, which was an Ethel Merman vehicle written by Irving Berlin. So, you know, it's tough. But it still won Best Musical. Okay, fine. So a couple of other things about the show. This show is one of the most revived musicals of all time on Broadway. It depends how you look at it because, like, it was so popular. First it ran for, like, something like 1,200 performances, which was very long back then. And then um, essentially every few years they brought it back in sort of mini-revivals or limited engagements. So there have been, depending how you look at it, maybe um, six Broadway productions of this musical at most. So here's something that I am embarrassed that I didn't know until I was doing research for this episode is. So you are aware that in rare occasions, about eight times in history, Broadway musicals have won the Pulitzer Prize for drama. Most recently, Hamilton. Guys and Dolls was going to win. It got shortlisted and it was voted as the winner. But a couple of people involved with the production, including one of the book writers, were in hot water with HUAC. So the like Columbia University trustees who were in charge of awarding the prize backed out, did not award the Pulitzer to Guys and Dolls, and in fact canceled the award that year. They didn't give it to another show instead. There just was no Pulitzer Prize for drama that year. Um, that's stupid. Um, can I tell you something about the 
latest status of the movie remake that's been planned? Oh, yeah, we have to talk about that. Tell us who's supposed to star in this potential movie musical remake. It's been in development hell for a long time. Uh, They have been planning to do a remake of Guys and Dolls, the movie, starring Channing Tatum as Nathan Detroit, I believe, and Joseph Gordon-Levitt as Sky Masterson, or the opposite. I'm not sure which. That's what I was going to ask. I don't know which of them would be which. Neither of them are really suited to be either. It's like, do either of them sing? I mean, like, a little bit. Channing Tatum can dance, but it's actually not a dance show, like, at all. It's like, what? What comes next in this podcast? Hey, what comes next in the podcast, because we're on the home stretch here, um, Izzy, what was, and we'll start with least favorite lyric, and then your favorite lyric of the show. Start with what is your least favorite lyric. It took me a lot of work to find a least favorite lyric, but from More I Cannot Wish You. Um, and look, the whole song is just kind of meh, but I will go for the opening lyrics. Velvet I can wish you for the collar of your coat, and fortune smiling all along the way. But more I cannot wish you than to wish you find your love, your own true love this day. It's just kind of corny, and it just doesn't have any, like, the rhymes work. But it's not clever, it's not interesting, it's just totally generic romantic bleh. Mine is from I've Never Been In Love Before. Even though they were just drinking in Cuba, I guess, I don't know, my line is, but this is wine that's all too strange and strong, I'm full of foolish song, and out my song must pour. I don't think the lyric is good enough to justify the inverted syntax at the end. Um, All too strange and strong. I'm full of foolish song. It's just not the way the characters talk at all. It's like a poor metaphor. It's a bad metaphor. It's a wine metaphor, but then it's also like Sarah's just sobering up from her first drunken experience and it wasn't good. Anyway, a a lyric I legitimately don't like. I found one. Go me. Um, What did you do for favorite lyric? So... I was going to try to pick something really clever, but at the end of the day, and like there's so much you can pick, but I'm a sap. I'm just like maple syrup tapped out of a tree in Canada. And so I went for my favorite song, My Time of Day. When the smell of the rain of the rainwashed pavement comes up clean and fresh and cold and the street lamp light fills the gutter with gold. Well, I guess I I'm not using that, that one. <laughs> Oh, gosh, it's too real. It, it's like, it 100% feels like romantic and earnest, but still in Sky's voice and like, a, like describing the world he lives in. It, like, it, it's not like that crappy wine metaphor where you're like, where did this come from? It's like, you know, what he finds, like his favorite thing is like, I don't know, New York at 4 a.m. Yes. And it really gets that across. Oh, I especially love the gutter and gold. Um... So, I obviously had a difficult time picking a favorite lyric, and I did pick a few, which is good, but at a certain point, I just kind of stopped picking because I was so overwhelmed, so I give this, but I don't even know if it's my official. Mine is from the reprise of Adelaide's Lament, which is not on the original Broadway cast recording, which is a shame. Um, so, there, so, she's talking about how sick she is um, from being alone. Um, if she's like, if she still gets the feeling she's naked from looking at her left hand, a person can develop the flu, the flu, 103.2, so much virus inside that her microscope slide looks like a day at the zoo. Oh, gosh. 
How did he even do that? How did Frank Lesser even do that? Uh, our parents have a book that's like sort of mine, but they have it that's about, that's like all the lyrics of Frank Lesser. So, is Yisrael. Yes. Thank you yeah. for coming back on my podcast. Um, thank you for having me. It is nearly midnight and I'm very tired, but it was really a pleasure to be on the show with you. It's just such a good musical and just like listening to the cast recording again in preparation for this episode just brought me such joy in a way that instantly in a way that few shows can and I'm someone who automatically gains a lot of joy from listening to musicals like some of those musicals that are like the your art typical musicals like the music is still great but they don't age well because like the plot's not very coherent right but guys and dolls I think totally it's I think it's... Yeah, there's nothing to forgive. There's nothing to forgive. It's one of my favorite musicals of all time. I used to always debate between this and The Music Man, and I just think if I had to choose, it would be Guys and Dolls every time. I think I would agree with you. Didn't EW put this as their number one musical at all time? Yeah, I think it's actually a pretty solid choice. Guys and Dolls We're just a bunch of crazy guys and dolls Thanks for listening to Pick a Little, Talk a Little. We're online at paltalpodcast.weebly.com. We're on Facebook at Pick a Little, Talk a Little, and Twitter at Paltal Podcast. As always, we are edited and produced by the incomparable Rachel Jacobs. She's at Twitter as WTFRJK. I am your host, Gabriella Gazelowitz. You can find me on Twitter, Gabby Gazelowitz, G-A-B-Y-G-E-S-E-L-O-W-I-T-Z. Easy. Please rate us and review us. It really would mean a lot. Email us, paltalpodcast at gmail.com if you want to say hi. All right, thanks. And until next time. And as they say in Phantom of the Opera, no more memories, no more silent tears, no more gazing across the wasted years. Help me say goodbye. Luke, be a Jedi tonight. Just be a Jedi tonight. Do it for Yoda while we serve our guest a soda. Uh, and do it for Chewie and the Ewoks and all the other puppets. So I I know the the revival a little better than the original. Do they make it up for the revival that Benny Salstreet's always talking about wanting pictures of Spider Man, or was that in the original version of the musical? Too? Shut up. It's very weird. He's always just like doing pictures <laughs> of Spider Man. I don't know where it comes from. Um, very odd. The man all has right. an Oscar, is he? He's not just J. Jonah Jameson. Honestly, if there was one episode where we could get away with doing outrageous accents, it would be this one. My, our producer shaking her head. Um, I mean, it turns out I already have an outrageous accent. I didn't know that until I listened to myself on this podcast and was like, wow, I've got an outrageous accent. Why did nobody tell me?